The sermon today is taken from two passages in Luke. I'll read both of them for your hearing. Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. Many have undertaken to draw upon an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the, from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. The second passage, Luke 24, says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened these, uh, there in these last days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priest and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women were amazed. Some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a, a vision of angels and said he was alive. Then some of the companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And the, beginning, and, and the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which he was going, Jesus acted as if he was going to go farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread he gave, thank, he gave thanks, he broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he walked and talked with us along the road, and while he opened the scripture to us? Thank you, Dale. I want to remind you that at the end of this time here, we're going to have a little bit of Q&A, uh, a chance for you to ask questions, and especially given the topic that we're uh, covering today, I want to make sure that we have ample time uh, to let you um, 
ask whatever's on your mind based upon the teaching or just what you brought in with you. Uh, So feel free to jot those down and ask them. Feel welcome to do that. Let me say a word of prayer and then we'll get going. God, we pray for the power of your spirit because we need your help in this time. We, We pray for power because we are weak. Our listening is weak and limited. Our ability to understand the things of God is weak and limited. The preacher is weak and limited. And so we need you to come and fill this time with your presence, with your purposes, with your spirit. We pray that you would do your will. Help us, God. We need you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, each week, the past couple weeks, we've been looking at some common barriers to belief, uh, reasons why a lot of us find it too hard to embrace the Christian faith. Uh, We're calling this mini-series Too Hard to Believe, and as I was coming up with that title, I considered, this is a couple weeks ago, considered putting a question mark at the end of it, uh, too hard to believe, question mark, uh, but then decided against it because I thought, no, actually, for many of you, it's not a question. For many of you, these barriers are, in fact, too much for you to overcome personally for you to embrace the Christian faith. Jesus claims to be the only way to God. Well, doesn't that just make Christianity exclusive, even arrogant? That's just not for me. Or there's tons of evil and suffering in the world, and for many of you, that is irreconcilable with the character of a loving and a good God. These are deal breakers for you. They do make it too hard for you to believe And so we want to honor that and respect those thoughts and those questions, those objections that you hold. And again, not only for those of you that might be investigating the Christian faith, maybe for the first time, but also for those of you that are professing Christians, but for many years, maybe, maybe even till today, have carried around with you quiet questions. Maybe you might even call them doubts. Maybe things that you weren't allowed to inspect or examine because of the church or the family that you were a part of growing up. But you know that the most honest thing for you to do would be not to undermine your faith, but to show the deep foundations that we have of our gospel faith. It's important for you to examine them as well. We've been doing this. This is the third week. We've got one more next week. And today, this is what we're looking at. This supposition, this proposal, this belief. The Bible is just too unreliable. Talking about the Bible here. Too unreliable as a record of history, as a guide to morality, as an ancient text that's supposedly the written self-revelation of the God of the universe, it's just too much, too unreliable, too little grounds for you to embrace it as the word of God. And what I want to do is to move quickly here. I'm not going to be able to cover every last question and issue. That's what the Q&A time is going to be for. But I want to move through four quick issues, challenges, issues that people often have. 
It's not the only ones, but we'll tackle these and we'll see what else you come up with. Issue number one. Well, first of all, why does it even matter whether the Bible is historically reliable or not? Why does that even matter for us to tackle this issue here? Now, I admit, oftentimes, this isn't actually one of the top questions that people ask because... Especially in a town like Washington, D.C., most people assume that the only thing that really matters is my personal spiritual experience. That it doesn't really matter whether Jesus actually said or did these things or the different characters in the Bible, whether they're historical fact or not. That doesn't matter. What really matters is whether I have some sense of the presence of God and whether I feel a little bit better about myself at the end of my spiritual time with him. But according to the Christian faith, the historical reliability of the Bible does matter. In fact, this is what distinguishes the Christian faith from every other belief system. Let me explain. In other faiths, it doesn't really matter whether Buddha or Muhammad or any other significant figure in their religious texts, whether they actually performed a miracle or actually went here or there or actually said this or that. It doesn't matter because you're not saved or you're not helped by what they did, but rather by what you do in response to what they said or taught or did. It doesn't really matter. The historicity of these texts are not essential to those faiths. The Christian gospel is the exact opposite. It's the belief that the God of the universe, I know it's a wild idea, but he actually entered human history as an act of love, as an act of mercy and solidarity with the people that he made. That he walked this earth as a human being. That he really did live as a true representative of all those who would embrace him. And he really did, in fact, die and historically and legally suffer the punishment before God that we deserve. And he really did rise again to give us Life. You see, in the Christian faith, you are saved by historical events, things that God really did do. What God has done, not by what you do. You see, it really does start to become the grounds for which we understand what the Christian Bible calls the gospel, the good news of grace. That everything that makes you right with God and loved by God and accepted by God and counted as perfectly righteous in the sight of God with full forgiveness and purpose is not that you acted in history and did okay but that God acted in history and did more than okay in Jesus for your salvation. So why does it matter whether the Bible is historically reliable or not? Friends, there is no good news if there is no history. 
But issue number two, and maybe a little bit closer to what's actually on your mind, isn't the Bible just a collection of myths and ancient legends? I mean, come on, who are we kidding ourselves? Don't they just sound like these fantastic stories that have floated around through human civilizations from the beginning of time? Aren't they just myths and legends? And we do have many examples of ancient writings that might fit that category, that genre description, the Epic of Gilgamesh, Homer's Iliad, Greek mythological writings, things that maybe you read in junior high or high school that you hope you wish you didn't have to read or understand. But if you actually carefully read and study those texts, and if you're careful and thoughtful about what you're writing, you'll understand and notice that none of those sound like this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. There's, there's sort of a, a nerdiness to the claims of the Bible to what it's actually proposing to do here. This author here, Luke, who was a medical doctor in the ancient world, who apparently, as he's telling us in the prologue of his grand narrative about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, tells us that he has carefully drawn upon different sources that have already been circulating around the time of Jesus and the decades after him. That he has studied them, that he has weighed the evidence, that he's pulled them together to create, no, not mythology, and no, not legend, and not even poetry, not even personal blogging reflections about what actually happened with Jesus. He says, this is history, this is fact, this is what I offer to you, O most excellent Theophilus, who we don't know who he is, or what his identity is, Theophilus but so that this individual or group of individuals might know the certainty of the things that they have been taught. Luke is clearly stating that his intent is to write an accurate, factual account based on the testimony of eyewitnesses. Now, of course, this doesn't automatically prove that everything he says is accurate. Not saying that. But it does tell us this. You can't say that Luke was just writing stories and he was just making up legends. Either it really did happen this way or he's deliberately lying. He's deliberately trying to front himself as writing history when in fact he's trying to sell you a book of deception. Of course, you might say, well, maybe he wasn't lying. Maybe he knew he was writing fiction, but he wrote it sort of tongue-in-cheek or maybe as if it were real, you know, kind of like a good novel. Well, here's the truth about this. Students and scholars of literature, um, especially ancient literature, will very clearly state that this genre of realistic fiction, 
which is sort of the, the normal form of fiction that we like to read today. Things that present itself as being very, very plausible, uh, but that's exactly why they're entertaining. Reality stuff, right? Not only in books, but also on TV and in movies. The genre of the modern, modern novel didn't actually exist in ancient times. For example, you don't have snapshots of just ordinary, mundane life in Homer's Iliad. You certainly don't have the kinds of details that we find here in Luke 24, the second reading, which is sort of the epilogue to the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Where you have two men that are walking down a street, where they're having a conversation with a stranger, where they actually share a meal. You don't have that. Where we're given geographical details, like in verse 13, we're told that they're on their way to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Or we're given some of the people's names, verse 18, one of them named Cleopas. C.S. Lewis, who became a Christian scholar and writer and defender of the faith, but who also was a literature professor, a scholar in this field, he wrote this. I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Speaking about the Bible. Either this is pretty close to the fact, or else some unknown ancient writer suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative. If you were just to study the history of literature, you would understand that historically, writing as a known, self-conscious, fictional writer proposing itself as fact was not something that was done at the time of these writings. You can't simply say these are just good, made-up stories with helpful moral principles. They're not claiming to be that. They're claiming to be history. You can accept that as true. You certainly are invited to investigate if those facts actually are true. But you can't, you simply cannot get away with saying, well, maybe the writers were just kind of making up stories. Or maybe they thought they were real. Or maybe they knew they weren't real, but they were just trying to pass it off as sort of entertaining fiction. Or you can't even say, maybe they thought they were real, but they were kind of confused and delirious. I really do think sometimes there's a little bit of uh, generational arrogance that we can have, where we look at ancient people and we always kind of say, well, they were so primitive, they didn't know the difference between fact and fiction. You know, they thought it was real, but they kind of just made it up, and they didn't really have a regard for history in the way that we do today. We say these things, or maybe we think these things. The first verses we read totally obliterate that. Here's a highly educated writer that's carefully with a long run-on sentence. In fact, everything we have here in the original Greek is one sentence with a lot of subordinate clauses, right? He's writing in a very cumbersome way with a lot of complexity to say, I ain't making this stuff up. Issue number three. But what if the biblical authors did try to make stuff up? I'm supposed to bank my whole life on falsehood? I mean, right, we're not just talking about how to get to the grocery store and someone telling you the untruth about that. We're talking about an invitation to give your entire life to this one account of reality, of God, of your life, of how you're right with God, of your future, of everything. 
what if these biblical authors did try to make this stuff up about what Jesus did and what he said and whether he actually did these miracles, whether he actually did die, rise again, stories about the Messiah who performed these things, said wise things, rose from the dead. Well, listen, let me give you two things, two quick things, maybe all too quick. First of all, historians agree that the Gospel of Luke was most likely written around A.D. 60 to 65. And of course, together with other writings of the Bible, which were written uh, somewhere between 45 to 80 or 90 A.D., 60 to 65 A.D., that's only 25 or 30 years after the events being recorded and written down took place. Jesus' public ministry happened around 30 A.D. So, (laughs) you're saying, so... That means Cleopas, Jesus' disciples, people that were purportedly healed, even raised from the dead, soldiers that were a part of his crucifixion, people that heard him teach, people whose lives supposedly were changed, people who stood up and said, I will live for you, I will die for you, Stories and characters and events that are recorded in writings like the Gospel of Luke, these people mentioned are still alive. Uh, This was not written two, three, five, six, seven hundred years after the events took place. They're still alive while these writings are circulating during their lifetime. And so they'd be able to corroborate or deny the things that were being said. Yes, that's exactly how it happened. Or what? That's a story about me. That's not what happened. Or what? I was raised from the dead. Sorry, I'm still dead. Well, you couldn't corroborate that. (laughs) Something like that. Look, for example, if I were to say, I've lived here in Columbia Heights since 1985. Uh, I lived here on Holmead Place right over here. Uh, just down the street. And one day in 85, there was a very large earthquake, swallowed up half the people on 14th Street. And then out of nowhere, Target emerged out of the big crack in the ground. And everyone started shopping there happily. And the rest is history. Now, it wouldn't fly. It wouldn't fly in this room. It wouldn't fly if I went in the street and started making up stories like that. Why? Because there are plenty of people here, maybe some of you, that would say, look, I was here in 85. First of all, you weren't here. I wasn't. Second of all, there was no earthquake. There was no earthquake. And third of all, DCUSA, this great shopping center, was just built a few years ago. See, all the difference that it makes when you understand the compressed timeline that we actually are working with between the writings of these things and the people that are being narrated about in those writings. But secondly, if the biblical authors were making stuff up and trying to pass it off as stories, they were the most bumbling deceivers ever to see literature and to make and write literature. If you were to make up tales about a purported Messiah, and you were trying to propagate a new religion, whether for reasons of power or simply just to start something new, 
you would not include in those writings such unflattering descriptions of Jesus' followers, would you? It wouldn't help your cause. But here we have in Luke 24, we're told about two followers who simply do not get it. Their Messiah supposedly has just accomplished the great thing that all of Jewish history has been waiting for. Not only his arrival here, talking about his resurrection from the dead, and they miss it. And not only them, worse, Jesus' inner circle, his 12 disciples, who were at the time of this writing, leaders of the church, leaders of this great movement in the Mediterranean region, embarrassingly unbelieving throughout Luke's account. Embarrassingly told as having betrayed Jesus Christ himself. Embarrassingly fearful, shameful, running away, denying their dear friend and master. If this was how you were, if you were going to write and start a new religious movement, you would most certainly edit out or simply not concoct depictions of leaders like this. Secondly, Roman crucifixion as a way of salvation. We sang about it here. We hear about it referred to in the middle of this passage. Verse 20, the chief priests and our rulers handed him, that's Jesus of Nazareth, over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. If we understood how offensive crucifixion was in this time, most certainly to Jewish believers, for whom they would never have embraced this idea of God coming with such weakness, And here in the Roman Empire, in Greco-Roman culture, where even the word crucifixion was not allowed to be uttered in polite company, that's how gruesome and crass and offensive the idea of how people were executed was presented as being in Roman society. If you were making this stuff up, you would not try to sell on people a salvation that came through this kind of execution. Thirdly, in verse 22 to 24, you see the central role in which the women followers of Jesus played in the proof of Jesus' resurrection. Let me read it. Verse 22, some of our women amazed us, they explained. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. You may have heard this, it's often cited, but women in this time, in this culture, had zero legal standing whatsoever. You actually see this in some Near Eastern, Far Eastern cultures even to today. Their testimony is not legally admissible, has no clout and teeth in a court of law. So why would you create stories that had the very first eyewitnesses to the supposed bodily historic resurrection of Jesus? Why would they be women when that itself can make the entire testimony fall apart? Either they had no clue what they were doing or maybe it actually happened that way. That the very first people that came onto the scene were people that saw what they saw and testified to what they saw, even if they had no 
legal standing to testify in a court of law. Let me move to issue four, and then we'll close up with this. Issue four. Okay, maybe all of this is interesting. Maybe it's helpful. But at the end of the day, how am I supposed to believe that this Bible is the so-called word of God? Okay, maybe there's some interesting historical stuff. Maybe it's worth considering. Maybe some of these theories that are out there, maybe they're a little bit weaker than I expected, but you're still telling me that according to Christian belief, I'm to believe that this thing, these, these, this collection of ancient texts was co-authored by God. Isn't the Bible just a collection of ancient human writings? And it's true, this is the proposed belief that the Bible was written by human authors, but also at the same time by God himself. In the book of 1 Peter, we're told that human authors were carried along by the Holy Spirit, God himself, as they wrote. In the book of 2 Timothy, we're told that scriptures are breathed out, exhaled by God, divine origins. God intimately involved in the authorship of these words when they were originally written. What are you supposed to do with that? Well, this is what you're supposed to do. First of all, understand that it's impossible to prove that. Maybe that's not what you expected me to say. It's impossible to prove on a rational and scientific basis at least in the way that we typically ask for it to be proven, that the Bible was actually written by God and the words that we have in your bulletin printed contained in the written scriptures are the inspired self-revelation of God. Let me ask you this. Let me put it to you this way. If the Bible really was written by God, what would prove to you that it was? Let's say it was. What would definitively prove to you that, yes, this thing was penned by God? Maybe not hand on the ink, but hand on the people, the human authors directing and guiding their thoughts and the things that they were articulating, the different circumstances and situations that are captured in the pages of Scripture, the historical events that we've been talking about. What would prove to you that God wrote it What? And would it be definitive, in fact? What would prove it? Would it glow? That might prove it's weird or something you don't want to be holding too long. But look, I mean, really, it doesn't in itself prove that it's divine. Would it tell you in writing, Hi, it's God. I'm actually writing this. Well, you know, it actually does say that. And there are a thousand and one different ways in which we can rationalize that away and not believe it. Would the book only teach things that you already agreed with and felt good about and never say anything that offended you? I tell you, if that's the Bible you're expecting to read, it would have been written by you, not God. Would the book levitate? I mean, I'm not mocking these different suppositions. I really mean it as a real question. What would persuade us? 
And here's my point. Every proof that we would be able to come up with, every rational test, every scientific test would be helpful on one level, but would not be definitive in rationally proving that this really is God's word. Look, if the Bible really is supernatural, if it really is divine, if it really is a God-written book, then we should expect that it can't just be proven by human means. I'm trying to help you reason about the unreasonability of trying to show a way to prove that this actually is God's word by purely rational and scientific tools. So you say, okay, then then we're just stuck, right? Well, this is what you can do. What you can do is demonstrate rationally that it's possible that it just might be what it purports to be, God's word. You can remove as best as you can or disprove all these other alternate theories out there as best as you can. You can say, look, we'll clear it out to make it possible or to see that it might just be possible, though not provable, that this is in fact the inspired words of God. You can do your research to see if the Bible is historically reliable. You can think about some of the arguments that we just talked about here today. You can see if it's myth or legend. You can see if people could have made this up. See if the alternate theories hold up. Clear the way. And then... You've got to put yourself in front of the Bible and read it or listen to it being taught or preached on or explained and see if you personally experience the communication of God through it. Verse 32 it says, after Jesus gave this little impromptu road-walking Bible study with these two followers, explaining to them from cover to cover how every part of the Bible pointed to Jesus, the Savior of the world. And after they realized it was Him, when He broke bread with them, as we're about to do here in remembrance of Jesus Himself, As he broke bread with them, their eyes were opened and they said, oh my goodness, it really is him. And then he disappears. But they say to each other, verse 32, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? What you've got to do is put yourself in front of the word and see if your hearts burn Because if it's more than a human text, should we not expect that to happen? If it really is the voice of God captured in written form, should we not in our hearts and souls expect to hear the voice of God? If it really is divine... And if it really is cover to cover through different genres of history and poetry and prophecy, didactic teaching, all these different forms that we find in the Bible, if it really is about the person of Jesus, should not our encounter with the Bible feel personal? Electric, not because it glows, but because your heart burns saying this must be true. 
And he must be here. You see, how can you prove that this is more than just a human text? How can you prove it's a spiritual text, as it were? Well, the only way to do that is by personally experiencing it spiritually and personally. To listen for the voice of God communicating to your soul. So read it and listen and have an open heart and mind in all these different ways, which is the experience of anyone who actually does profess to have a new, fresh relationship with God in Jesus, where you do say, yes, my heart has burned. Yes, my heart continues to burn. Because Jesus is alive. Because the gospel of grace is real. Because my sins are forgiven. Because I do have a grasp of the truth. Because I do have hope for this life. Do you want your heart to burn? And wouldn't you agree that that is how you would know that it is in fact God inhabiting this ancient text written by him and not just by human authors. And at the end of the day, there is no other way for you to rationally prove that it is what it says it is. Just a few thoughts, a few issues, but at the end of the day, an invitation. Take the Bible. Take it in. I know you have a lot of objections or uncertainties. I'm including professing Christians as well. But will you slowly take new steps, maybe fresh steps, maybe even this afternoon, to read the, God, the Word of God, to take it in, to let your lives be changed by it? Let's pray together. God, we ask your blessing upon our continuing thoughts and questions. Uh, We want to know you more, and we know we can know you through your word. So please help us as we consider these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.